Welcome to the latest episode of the Fish to Final Table Poker Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Oakley, and I'm currently basking in the glory of a successful first online poker session. But coming up, we've got Grosvenor Poker Online's Andy Hills, who will be casting a critical eye over some of my hand histories, and in the process, perhaps wiping the smug smile from my face. But first, I'm delighted to say that this episode has a bit of an international flavour to it, thanks largely to my first guest. She's a mid-stakes player and a well-known presence in the game. And if you're lucky enough to have played poker across the globe, then there's a good chance you may have bumped into her at the tables. She's a veritable tour guide for poker players across the globe, coming to us via the airwaves from Zurich, Switzerland. It's Maureen B. Thank you so much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. Now, to the untrained ear, this might sound like the first time that we've spoken, but we've actually done this conversation before. But for technical reasons, it didn't quite go to plan, did it? So this is our second attempt. Lovely to speak to you again, Maureen. So give us a little introduction. What's your current role in the game? Right. So at the moment, I have various roles in the game. So here in Switzerland, um, I work for buyin.info which is the largest poker website in the German part of Switzerland. So we do a lot of event advertising. And then I also am a dealer at a private poker club here in Switzerland called Prestige Poker. So those are my paid roles, let's say. So then um, from a volunteer point of view, I also do um, many other things. So for example, I run the Globetrotting Poker Ladies Group, which focuses on ladies tournaments being held around the world um so of course in during these corona times there's not many events but we hope they come back soon and at the moment it's a lot of updates of what's happening in poker internationally and this group is only for the ladies and then in addition um, because of corona i also started the globe trading poker group which you can join men and women are all welcomed in the globe trading group so again In this group, I focus on international poker updates around the world, um, especially now highlighting which casinos are open, which countries are open. Um, If you go to a certain poker room, which health and safety measures are in place, for example, do you need to wear a mask? Um, Do you need to wear a visor? Is there going to be plexiglass or not? So um, that's kind of what I do at the moment. Um, And then I also do a show with Jillian Epp. Um, Hustler Honey is her channel on Twitch. It's called Poker Headlines. So that's once a week. And then we cover everything that's happening in the poker news. And then also I have a section on these international updates. Great. How did you find the game? Why do you love it so much? Sure. So um, I've been involved in poker since 2012. And I got into it actually by accident. So my husband and I would go to the casino a lot on Sundays to have dinner and um, we would play, you know, roulette, just kind of have a day out. And then one time we saw, oh, look, there's like, you know, a poker tournament for 200 Swiss francs. That kind of looks like fun. And at the time, you know, I knew five card stud from growing up playing with my grandparents. And then I talked to the tournament director and I said, oh, what kind of tournament is this? And he's like, no limit, hold them. And, you know, 
of course, I'm like, oh, I think I know that from the movie. So um, I decided to study a little bit up at home. And then he told me, you know, every Sunday we had the tournament. So then my husband and I, we planned, okay, next week, let's give it a go. So from that moment on, um, my first tournament, I was really hooked. I just found like the game so much more exciting. You know, you needed more strategy, strategy than just, you know, playing roulette. And I was totally hooked. Talk me through what that was like to play, sit down and play your first live game. How did you feel? Yeah, so the first game, um, I don't know how to describe it. It wasn't nerve wracking, but at the same time, you know, it was unfamiliar. Because when you play live poker tournaments, you know, you have to know when the tournament starts. You have to know the buy-in. You have to know where to go to register. So luckily, the floor man, um, he was very friendly, very open, um, really talked me through the process even um, brought me to my assigned seat the very first time. And then all the players also were helpful at the table because, um, you know, with poker, you always have to wait your turn, act in turn, place the bets. And even the first time I played, I made a couple of mistakes, but everyone at the table was quite friendly. They knew it was my first time playing, so they had some patience with me. It's it's a quite a daunting thought. A, the, the whole thing of going into a casino itself and 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 be sitting around you know i'm i'm playing online and it, even that i find it, there's quite a lot of anxiety in being judged on your actions and things like that so i think that would be multiplied perhaps by a few percent live did you find that so luckily in Switzerland, there's actually newcomer nights at most casinos. So they actually do a tour for you and, you know, show you um, this is this area with the slots. This is, you know, blackjack. This is the poker room. Also kind of give you just a snapshot. If you want to play roulette, this is how you do it. This is where you get your chips. So if you don't have a friend who you could go with, maybe check online the casino or poker room you want to go to. See if they have something like a newcomer's night or... Um, tour of the poker room so that that way you can um, feel a little bit more comfortable. And uh, what kind of player are you? Do you play cash tournaments, live, online? Yeah, so I prefer live if given the choice and I prefer tournaments but of course, you know, cash game is where you can really build your bankroll, make your money because with tournaments there's a lot of variance, a lot of up and downs and, you know, not everyone can win. So in a tournament, everyone pays the same amount of money. So for example, this tournament in Switzerland, we all paid $200. Um, 40 players entered the tournament, but really only 10% get to call themselves the winner and get money. So from 40 people, four get to say they're a winner and 36 get to go home with nothing. You're a dealer as well, aren't you? Tell us about that, what it's like to be on the other side of, of the felt. Yeah, so um, I began poker dealing as well because I would play at the same poker club in Switzerland almost every night. And I wanted to see and learn more about the game. So as a dealer, you really get to know, you know, the rules of the game. Because especially with tournament poker, they have the Tournament Directors Association and they have different rules that govern the game. And then also the casino has its own house rules. So being a dealer, you really need to study this book and really understand the rules in the game. And, you know, as a dealer, you're you're forced to follow the action, right? You're forced to know how big the pot is, what the players 
actions beforehand were. So it really, you need to be focused as mm. a dealer. So I think that also helped me a lot in my game. Not that I'm staring down players, you know, as a dealer, <laughs> but I can't, I can't look ahead. You know, I always have to look at the player whose turn it is. And of course, you know, um, I'm watching what they're doing. Yeah. So I, I bet the poker player in you is, is also working there. You, are you putting people on ranges? You're thinking, yeah, that guy's definitely got a pair of kings and... <laughs> Yeah, and it's funny, sometimes after the hand, because the players at the poker club in um, Zurich, they know that I play as well. So then they whisper to me, they're like, what do you think he had? Do you think he was bluffing? I'm like, I, I don't think so. <laughs> um, <laughs> so what kind of stakes do you play? And do you consider yourself a professional? or Right, so I don't consider myself um, a professional. For me, the stakes I play in, um, I would they would be considered mid-stakes. So most of the time I'm playing live tournaments between the $200 buy-in to $1,000 buy-in. Um, for anything higher, I try to satellite into the event. So with a satellite, it's an opportunity to win a ticket. So for example, for the 1,500 euro main event at King's Casino in Rosadolf, they usually run a $150 satellite. So for $150, if you're one of the lucky winners, then you get the ticket worth $1,500. It's a different strategy, a different technique, but I can play them quite well. So usually I play the satellite to play the main events. Amazing. Because then the, the potential return on investment can be huge, can't it? Yes, for sure. So what's, what's poker like in Switzerland then, Maury? Yeah, so here in Switzerland, unfortunately, we don't have online poker at the moment. Um, we can only play casino games online. So the live scene, we can play in the casino. There's cash games on offer and also tournaments. And then we also have private poker clubs like Prestige Poker, where I work. So let's talk about the last six months with the coronavirus the global pandemic. Given your a live player. How has the lockdown and the lack of live poker, how has that impacted your life? Yeah, so it had a great impact on um, my life. So actually, my husband and I, we were living in Hong Kong in January when the coronavirus hit. And we actually had a leave and we came back to Switzerland on February 1st. So we thought, you know, everything would be okay. You know, things in Switzerland in February were quite normal, more or less, you know, no cases of Corona. So I actually went to King's Casino in March to play the WSOP circuit event. So we were actually at King's and the mood kind of changed, right? Because every day there would be different news stories, you know, more cases of Corona. Corona, borders closing, etc. So the players, you know, were very nervous, especially those who flew in to the Czech Republic for the event. And actually one gentleman, he's like, guys, I need to leave. Like, you know, my country shutting its borders just spoke to the airline. It's like now or never. And I was getting pretty nervous. I, I can drive to King's Casino, the Czech Republic by car. So for me, it was just a matter of packing up my belongings and getting in the car. And after a long debate, I was like, I think I need to go. So then Wednesday morning, I'm like, I just got to get out of here. And basically got in my car like 10 a.m. and drove away, stopped in Austria to get some gas. And Basically, my phone blew up. It, it was just like full of messages. I'm like, what happened? And here, the Czech Republic announced that they were closing the border that night oh. to all foreigners. Oh, wow. 
So, so it was just like a surreal experience. And then basically from there, we went into lockdown till casinos were given the go ahead again, June 8th to reopen in some places in Europe. Things are starting to open up a bit more now. Have you been able to get back to King's? Because I know it's quite an important place for you, isn't it? Yeah, so I actually went about uh, three weeks ago. So it was really nice to be back. Really nice to see all my poker friends and just to have some fun. So what was the atmosphere like there then? I bet there was a lot of people really happy to be back playing live poker. Yeah, I mean, the atmosphere... um, I walked in and I was like, you know, Corona what? It was basically, you know, the same atmosphere as um, pre-Corona days. Um, Everyone was happy. The tables were packed. I mean, for the tournaments, they did have caps. So, for example, for the main event on Saturday, it was 500 person cap per game. So you had to buy your ticket ahead of time. But if you didn't want to play the tournament, there was tons of cash games running. I think at the peak on Saturday night, there was 23 tables running. Wow. So what's Kings like? You know, is it a bit like the Vegas of Europe? Yeah, I would say so. And um, so the owner of Kings, Leon, um, he really caters to the poker player. So there's nowhere else in the world where I can go where they cater to us, right? Normally they're catering to the blackjack players or the slot players, etc. But no, at Kings, the poker players come first. And what's great about Kings is, you know, you have really nice infrastructure with the tables and the chairs and the cash game. You all, they have the leather chairs available, really nice tables. And the dealers are world-class as well, right? Really good dealers, really fast dealers. So it's a pleasure to play there. Is this like your spiritual home then? Is this your ideal <laughs> place to play poker? Um, it, It's one of the ideal places to play poker. I mean, we, we spoke a lot offline about how I love to travel and play poker. And that was one of my passions and one of the drivers of fi- founding Globetrotting Poker Ladies and Globetrotting Poker. Um, in Europe, yes, Kings would be um, my go-to place. Around the world, I have different favorites. Perfect segue, Maureen, into the next topic. So (laughs) it's like we've rehearsed this before, isn't it? (laughs) So um, tell us a bit more about those groups then, what they are and uh, why you set them up. Right. So in 2016, I founded Globetrotting Poker Ladies. And I founded this group because I went to the World Series of Poker in Las Vegas. And I met a lot of the American and Canadian players. And I was one of the few players that flew in from abroad. So, you know, being the social person I am, you were talking at the table and it always came up. Okay, Maureen, where can I play poker in Europe? You know, can I play it in Spain? How's Barcelona? How's Monaco? How's London? And I'm like, ladies, isn't this information somewhere? And they're like, no, not that I can find. I'm like, okay, so I think there's a need for this group. So basically, I left Vegas, went home, created this little Facebook group, Globetrotting Poker Ladies. And I started to post about different tournaments happening around the world, especially those tournaments featuring ladies events. So at the time, this was 2016, EPT, the European Poker Tour, were still having the ladies' championships. So a lot of my posts were about EPT and also the Poker Stars Championships, which also hosted ladies-only events. Because, 
You've travelled extensively, haven't you, with, with poker? You, you've been across the world. Tell us about, about that. Yeah, so before I found poker, my husband and I would travel to different cities around the world to attend concerts. And then, you know, we got a little bit older. I found poker and it's like, well, wait a second. If I can play poker in Switzerland, I'm sure I can play it around the world. And this is how I found out about all these events. So one of the first poker trips ever was um, to the EPT Monaco to play the ladies events. So, you know, my husband and I always like to go to Southern France on vacation. And then I'm like, hey, well, can we time it with the EPT? So that's kind of how I got into it. And at the time, you know, I was new to poker, but also, you know, I only played in Switzerland. And then walking into the EPT, it's it's a different level of poker, very international, more players, more tables. Um, the players are just so good. It is a little intimidating, I would say. So I played the ladies' events to also get the experience of playing with all these players from around the world, playing in these big venues and playing outside of Switzerland. I mean, Monaco sounds amazing. Vegas, these places have a certain kind of image to them, don't they? Glitzy, glamour. What's the place that you've played at where you'd least expect to find a card room? So one of the places that we found a casino was actually Kathmandu. So we were on a trip, um, we did Mount Everest and then, you know, went over the border from China um, into Nepal. And at our hotel, it said like casino. I'm like, okay, let's go check this out. So we went there and actually there was a casino. And it was really crazy because you couldn't use the local Nepalese money. Also, the locals weren't allowed in. Um, it was basically a foreigners only casino and you had to use Indian rupee to pay. So we exchanged our money, you know, the casino manager came over. So I asked her, you know, do you have any poker tournaments? Do you have poker cash games? And she's like, no, unfortunately not. But we have this game called Kitty where you can play against the house. So I'm like, okay, yeah, let, let's do it. Show it to me. So she stood behind us and taught us the rules of the game. And then, you know, I, I rearranged the cards. And I'm like, I think I have it. And she goes, yeah, you, you just made a full house. I think you understand the rules of the game. Although it wasn't tournament poker, although it wasn't cash poker, it was just a sur surreal experience, you know, being in Kathmandu in Nepal at a casino where we could kind of play poker. We, we play this game, Kitty. And I tried Googling it and I can't find it anywhere. And I also couldn't find the casino anymore online to get more information. So, Kitty basically only exists in this one casino in Kathmandu. <laughs> it, see, it seems so. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. And um, what's your favourite place to play? Other, other than Kings, you know, that's a bit of a, a home from home for you, isn't it? So where, where else yeah. do you really enjoy playing internationally? Yeah, so internationally, I really love to go to Taipei, Taiwan. So there you don't play in a casino, you play in a poker club. And uh, it's just great. Um, I speak some Mandarin, so that's a um, advantage for me. I also love the Taiwanese food. And, you know, the people are so nice. And the club where I go to, it's very well run. They know their rules. They run a tight ship, which I like, very organized. And it's just a great experience. Have you missed it then? The traveling aspects of, of your poker life? Yeah, I mean... I, I miss it every day, you know. I miss the people. I miss the socialization. I miss flying. But at the same time, it's like, I don't even know if I can. 
And even if I wanted to, most of the countries, you know, I still can't get in, even with the Swiss passport, with different quarantines. So we were hoping that South Korea would open up to foreigners because WPT had a large tournament planned for September. But two weeks ago, the announcement came over that that was cancelled. I imagine through the groups, through, through your globetrotting groups, I imagine you're getting a lot of questions about, hey, when can we travel? When, when, when is this going to kind of come to an end? Is there a big take up for international poker? Throughout the corona crisis and globetrotting poker ladies, I kept on posting, you know, they're reopening London, they're reopening Czech Republic, you know, Korea's still closed, etc. So a lot of guys were like, well, Maureen, can I join the group? And I'm like, well, um, I kind of wanted to keep it ladies, you know, because we really wanted to have, you know, ladies travel. So I didn't want the men in the group. So then I was encouraged by some other poker players, like, please, you know, make a group for the men too. And that's why I bridged off into Globetrotting Poker as well. So anyone can join Globetrotting Poker for all the international updates that are out there. Originally, you set up the the Globetrotting Ladies Group. Why did you set up that group? Yeah, so it's male dominated. I mean, that's a fact. We see statistics all the time, you know, even the World Series of Poker main event, which happens every summer in Las Vegas, there's only about 3% of the players who are female. So um, there aren't many of us, right? So going to Vegas is actually a great experience because they host the World Series of Poker Ladies Championship. And around that event, all the casinos in Vegas host their own ladies events. So it's great because all the ladies book their trip for that week. And then you can meet other female players, right? You know, find travel buddies, discuss poker, discuss strategy. They, they become really good friends um, during this experience. For me, I like playing in the ladies events because again, being a newcomer to poker, I went for the ladies events first because I thought the open fields were too intimidating to me, right? You have all these guys who have been playing, you know, 15, 20, 25 years. And here I was, you know, back in 2012, you know, I'm new, I'm only in the game six months. I went for the ladies events for the familiar environment. And I get a lot of criticism because I do support the ladies events, but I tell the guys, look, you know, we're only 3% of the field in the main event. There's not many of us. So at least the ladies events gives us a platform to meet other ladies, to find travel buddies, and then also, you know, to build up our confidence that if we want to move into the open events with the men, then it's possible. You play both. You play mixed and, and the ladies events. How do they differ? Yeah, so I would be lying to say that there isn't a dynamic between men and women at the table. So if you are playing in the ladies' events, they're actually quite tough, right? In my experience, um, sometimes in the open event, you can get away with some moves, I would say. Okay. You know, because men, men have a certain um, image, right? Oh, she's a girl. She probably doesn't know what she's doing. She probably plays, you know, very tight, you know, not very loose, maniac, aggressive. So then, you know, if I open and then an ace comes on the flop and I make a continuation bet, most of the times I get credit, you know, for having that ace. Do you think you get more um, folds to, then from men? Um, Possibly, possibly. But then, you know, you're sitting at the table and then, you know, the players 
don't know me, then they realize, oh, wait a second, she actually knows how to play. So then, you know, then the dy dynamics change again. So then they can't, you know, put me in that um, feminine role of what they think or how they think women play poker. And then it changes the game again. But So that sounds like the gender aspect of the game is very significant for you when you're playing at the open events. It feels like you're having to do an extra layer of kind of strategic thinking that's based on gender. Would that be right? Yeah, I would say so. And in, in my experience, for sure. And I think playing around the world, it's also different. So like in Asia, I see that less the gender role. So if you sit down at the table, they know, okay, you're sitting down at the table, you bought into the event, you probably know what you're doing, right? When I go to the US, I see the gender roles more. And I don't know why that is. Yeah. My experiences in Asia have been wonderful. You know, you don't have players freaking out. You don't have players going on mad tilt. And, you know, w when you bust, most people are like, you know, nice hand and shake hands around the table. Mm -hmm. um, so, so, so for me, it, it's just been a totally different experience. Maybe listeners who are listening had, you know, different experiences mm -hmm. than me. Um, so I hate to generalize, sure. but yeah, it's so enjoyable for me to play in Asia, you know, especially Taipei. How important is it for you that this 3% statistic, which is staggering, that that is addressed at big events like the World Series of Poker main event? Yeah, so for me, it's quite important. We want to provide an environment that women feel comfortable in playing, right? We don't want bullying or anything like that. So, th so that's one aspect. Number two... All poker players, they like to play in larger fields. So if we look at the statistics and then see, okay, only 3% are women, that's one factor um, that we can concentrate on to try to grow the game, to try to grow the amount of players in poker. A game like poker, it needs to be... I mean, maybe you could say that about all sports as well, that, that they need to kind of reflect cultural and social dynamics. And for that to come through then there needs to be more there needs to be more women playing the game right in my opinion yes a lot of times you know we have women who want to play the game but in most families the women takes care of the kids so you know how can you balance taking care of your family having your career having your job and then adding poker into the mix I would say it's quite hard for women. And during the corona lockdown, um, some of these ladies groups, they do post, you know, deep runs of ladies, you know, performing well, cashing in tournaments. And there are so many ladies cashing online wow. and so many comments, you know, wow, look at all the ladies playing online. So no official survey has been done. But for me, that would be quite interesting to see, you know, is it because online poker is more flexible? Or does it come down to the gender roles or the feeling at the table? Yeah. Because online, you know, you're anonymous, no one knows you're a female player. Um, so I don't know if that also plays a role. So I would love for someone to do, you know, a formal survey, wow. so that we could have more information. That's fascinating, isn't it? That, that online, we are more anonymous, we hide behind the avatars that we create or the pictures we put up. Whereas live, you're using all sorts of different reads, aren't you? So that's fascinating that the gender bias that you experience live, might disappear playing online. And it'd be wonderful to find out what, statistically whether that is the case. Yeah, so I really wish someone would do a study. It's not my area of expertise. 
Um, but yeah, I find this point fascinating. Sounds like a PhD, and even... doesn't it? We could we could commission a PhD <laughs> on, on gender in online poker. Yeah, and for me personally, when I play on Poker Stars, everyone knows me because I play under MJ Bloch. Um, that's also my Twitter handle and social media handle. But when I play on GG Poker, I have a totally different name that no one knows. Interesting. And um, yeah, if I cash big, you'll see it in poker news. But until that day comes, <laughs> it's um, I haven't told anyone my screen name, but it's neutral, right? You can't figure out from my GG Poker name if I'm a male or a female. So what do you think puts women off playing live poker? So, so from these different women's groups I belong to, I do see a lot of posts, um, hear a lot of stories about intimidation at the table. So possibly that's a turnoff um, for some women. Have you have you experienced that? Um, I had once when I was in Las Vegas, I sat down at the table and an older gentleman to my left, he was like, oh, they allow women to play poker here. And I'm like, yeah, I think so. I think since like, you know, the 20th century, we're allowed an equal spot in the world. And then, you know, it, it was a weird situation for me because then, you know, I have to sit down knowing this guy has, you know, a grudge against me. And, you know, during the game, he kept on making comments, etc. And then when he left, I kind of said to the table, I'm like, you know, guys, please, if someone's treating another player so disrespectfully, why didn't any of you help me? Like, why didn't any of you speak up? And their reaction was, oh, but you handled it quite well. So I think with anything, you know, I have a strong personality. I can ignore this idiot with the comments and kind of play my game. But possibly if you have a different personality, it affects you differently. Yeah, I mean, I imagine if that happened to me, that would impact my playing massively. I, I think I would deal with that really badly. I would I probably would then get locked into this dynamic with this other player and just and and completely lose broader focus on the cards. You've been a dealer, so is there any kind of responsibility that falls on a, a dealer or maybe the table manager to kind of police that kind of behaviour? Yeah, so again it depends on the different card rooms, um, what the policy is. But at any time, I could have asked the dealer, you know, can you call the floor over to address this person um, or to take action? But again, it, it wasn't, it was incorrect, but not, you know, severe. He didn't threaten me, you know, he wasn't hitting the table, going crazy. It was just like, you know, little comments that were said. It's an interesting reaction from the table to what you say, isn't it? Because they're effectively saying, well, oh, it looks like you handled it fine. Well, you, you may have handled it fine and, and been assertive, but that doesn't mean it stops it from affecting you. And uh, yeah. so how did you move on from that? Is dealing with those kinds of aspects of playing life, is that something that you work on off the table in your study? or? Um, For me, no, I don't work on the emotional side. Maybe I should work the emotional aspect of poker a little bit more, try to keep my emotions more in check that I can make better decisions at the table. I would say offline studying or when I'm not playing live, if I'm studying, I'm concentrating more on, you know, strategy, you know, ranges, post-flop play, bet sizing, those kind of things, not really worrying about how people will treat me at the table. So what's the future looking like for you? I, I guess you've just got your fingers crossed waiting for things to open up more globally. 
For sure. So, so from a private aspect, I'm waiting eagerly, you know, can, can I get into Korea? Can I get into Taipei? When can I play in Asia again? And then I'm trying to play at Kings as long as the borders are open and as long as I don't have any quarantine. For poker in general, in Switzerland, we have a very positive aspect. September 1st, we started cash game again in Switzerland, also have some daily tournaments. We have a 550 tournament upcoming on September 20th. And this is insane, just to show you the future of poker. We advertised it on buyin.info and basically it was capped at 90 players because of corona regulations. We have 80 players on the waiting list. So the demand is there, but with the corona restrictions, you know, venues have caps on fields. So I don't think a large series in Switzerland is possible because of the regulations this year, but hopefully in 2021. So that's what I hope for. As for the WSOP and us international poker players traveling to the US, we hope the borders open and then we hope that the WSOP can take place in 2021. Right. Well, fingers crossed everything gets back to normal because, you know, I'm itching to start playing live and I can't wait because I think I'm really going to really enjoy it. Like you, I'm fascinated by the tells that people bring to the game and I think I will really enjoy the experience. And maybe the first experience of me playing internationally could be at King's and you could you could hold my hand as we go in to <laughs> show me where to sit and what to do. Of course, that would be my pleasure. Oh. So then you can just fly into Zurich and then I'll drive you there. Oh, perfect. You but know. that yeah, that would be so great. Yeah. And then maybe you can play in Switzerland too. So we get you two Hendon Mob flags. Yes. Well, <laughs> as long as I cash though, right? I have to cash. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, okay. so the pressure's on you. Come here to Switzerland. We play in Switzerland. You cash here. Then we go onwards to King's Casino in Czech Republic. And then you take down the big tournament there. Yeah, I, I love it. I know, you know, for many people play poker to make a profit or for the love of the game. I'm just playing just for the Hendon Mob flags. That's all I'm that's all I'm interested in. Maureen, th- yeah. thanks so much for joining us and uh, good luck in the future and yeah, ho- hope to get you on the pod again soon. It's been lovely chatting. Yes, thank you so much for having me on. It was great and good luck to everyone and see you on the felt somewhere in the world. Yay. Well, that's it for part 1. I'm off to see if Andy Hills has finished pouring over my hand histories. We'll be back in part 2 with a bit of analysis. So it's all happening. I've just opened an account with Grosvenor Casinos. I've chosen my avatar, a bald guy, which kind of suits me. Unfortunately, they didn't have the ginger beard, but that's fine. I can live with that. I'm literally about to start micro stakes. I've only put £20 on. I've printed out my starting hands chart. I've got a bit of time. The kids are in bed. I haven't had my tea yet, but we'll work something out, I'm sure. Wish me luck. So I'm about an hour into my first cash game and, well, the first table I sat at 
was just so fast I didn't know what I was doing. So I came off that table pretty sharpish and gone to a beginner's table. It's still micro stakes, but it's just a lot slower. I'm playing quite tight, going off the charts, and it seems like most of my opponents are also playing quite tight as well, which makes them a bit easier to read. And so things are going all right. I've started with four dollars, sorry, four euros it is, and I'm now up to six. So, so far, so good. I just want to fly and picture the moon from up high. I want to see it shining in your eyes, killing me softly until I rise. Then I will sing to Yeah, so I'm doing a lot of raising rather than calling and I'm stealing a lot of blinds that way, which has been quite nice. So I feel like whenever I've gone into a hand, there's been some action because I'm raising. And here we go now, I've got king, queen of spades. I'm in the big blind, someone's limped, the small blinds call. So I'm just now going to... So I've now just raised three times. The guy to my left has called, the other one's folded. And now the flop has come nine, king, ten, two hearts. So I'm going to bet into this because I've got top pair and I've got queen kicker. So I'm going to do 50% of the pot. There we go. Let's see what happens. He's called it straight away. Wow, king on the turn. So I've now got trips. Oh, what do I do here? I think I'll take him half all in. He's folded. That's really frustrating. But it's, it's this kind of, it's working. The strategy seems to be working so far. So fingers crossed that continues. And the moon will shine and light the room Oh, and your eyes will glow like mine soon So I'm almost at the end of the session now I gave myself a quarter to ten knock-off time and I'm going to stick to that It's been fine really There is a strange guy to my left who I've put a little note on him saying that he's a very bad player because it just doesn't make sense what he's doing so I'm gonna spend the next five minutes just seeing if I can chip away at what he's got let's see Yes, and that was sweet, lovely end. Literally three minutes until I'm finishing and I take a guy all in. I had top pair with an ace kicker, ace queen suited, great hand and yes, all right, it's dead easy this, isn't it? Absolutely. Everything wasn't plain sailing, but a good start. Right, can I go and have some tea now? Welcome back everyone. This is part two of the Fish to Final Table Poker Podcast and uh, drum roll please, he's back. Glutton for punishment. It's our man from Preston. It's Andy Hills. Hi again. Thanks for coming back Andy. Delighted to, uh, well I can see you this time which is lovely. Uh, I've got a little window into the wonderful world of Andy Hills. So um, uh, thanks for coming back. You, we're going to be going through some hand histories and I'm really really eager to hear what you've got to say uh but first let's let's chat what have you been up to how, how have things been poker 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 just been playing lots online any successes dare i ask yes it's been pretty good overall i play mainly on on grosvenor poker but i play on most of the main poker sites and um it's gone really well i've had plenty of final tables and i had one very significant win so oh, well yeah lo lockdown has been kind to me 
Oh, well, congratulations. That sounds amazing. And clearly there's something in the water here at the Fish to Final Table Poker Podcast because I was pretty happy with how I played as well in the few sessions that I had. So I'm looking forward to finding out whether you think I've got what it takes to become the next World Series of Poker Champion or maybe I should just actually stick to the day job. So Andy, the homework was in. It was in on time. The dog didn't eat it. How did I do in those first sessions? I'm actually really pleased with you because you've given me some really good material to show (laughs) how not to play poker. (laughs) Fantastic. I'm kind of winding you up a little bit there, Nick. So you have actually made a few classic errors, but overall, I liked your play. Okay. Most of your pre-flop play was good, which is a really good starting point. Firstly, I like your choice of game. I know we said that you decided on a nightly budget of £20. So I think you sat down with about four or five euros. That's good. Um, yeah. So that I like the choice of stakes. Also, your your tables did confirm that poker is not dead. Uh, people are getting better year on year, but at the low stakes, people are doing truly terrible things. <laughs> there was always at least one really bad player on your table, I noticed. Right. There was a guy playing far too many hands and making really basic errors, which you mostly weren't making. Yeah. And what was what I found really useful on the site was that you can make notes about the players. So when you gleaned a little bit of information, because people seem to be playing quite tight and often showdowns were few and far between, what was really useful actually was looking back at the history and seeing, ah, right, okay, so they raised pre-flop with actually ace-five offsuit. So start to get an idea of okay if they're going to do that then maybe i need to be aware that their range might be wider than perhaps mine or adjust accordingly and whenever i got a bit of information i put a note on there so that would remind me because otherwise i couldn't keep keep track yeah that's a great thing to do i make notes all the time in poker i like that you were raising uh, your widest range on the button so you were playing position correctly we were opening nine eight offsuit on the button which is fine but we were playing more snug in the other seats, which is absolutely solid strategy. There was a good situational fold where you had ace-10 offsuit in the small blind. Now the button raised, and you wouldn't normally fold ace-10 to a button raise, you know, given that a button can be raising with a very, very wide range, but he raised seven times the blind. So maybe when you're a beginner, you might look at that and go, oh, Mm. I don't think ace 10 is worth that many chips i don't really want to call a raise of 28 cents with with ace 10 but it actually goes beyond that we have to be thinking about what someone's range is when somebody raises a button what is the hand that they raise seven times the blind with i I would say more often than not that is going to be an amateur play so it probably is a hand in a very specific category it's something like ace king or pair of tens and Often amateurs raise bigger when they have hands where they're mm. scared of losing the hand, which is a very, very flawed way of thinking. Because no, nobody raises seven times a blind with aces, I right? See. Because you want to get action from aces. You're trying to get action from a worse hand. You'd, the worst case scenario is raising with yeah, aces and everybody folding, right? So when someone raises bigger, it tends to mean they don't have aces or they don't have kings. <laughs> but it tends yeah. not to be a really bad hand either. So... So should I have called that? No. So what you'll probably find is the kinds of hands that people do raise seven times a blind with are probably hands that are better than ace-10. Probably not Mm. as good as aces, but probably better than ace-10. So this is one of the problems in poker. You don't want to telegraph your hand. You don't want to do something Mm. that can only be a good hand. So that's good. Those are the positives. Yep. And when you raised a 9-8 offsuit on the button, you pretty much 
whiffed the flop. We got a nine six five heart heart flop, and I we remember. didn't have you know we we're, we're off suit, so we don't have a flush draw. But you do have four outs to a straight, and the key to this hand is you only had one opponent, and you made a bluff on the flop, and he did fall to that. We call that a continuation bet in poker. You know, this one of the most basic strategies in in hold'em. Very frequently, bluff the flop especially if you only have one opponent, especially if it's quite a dry flop. If it isn't too connected, you're going to get more folds with your bluff. Even if you don't get an immediate fold, you might sometimes be able to use more aggression to get him off whatever marginal hand he has. But yeah, start with the simple bluffs though. As a beginner, the main bluff we make is the continuation bet. Yeah. Regardless of whether we have a hand or not, we bet the flop. So C-betting effectively is it's an act of aggression, isn't it? So... In poker, does it pay to be aggressive? The fundamental reason that aggression is good is you have two ways of winning the hand. If you make a bet or a raise rather than checking or calling someone's bet, then you can win the hand right there and then. Whereas if you play your hand passively, you're going to perhaps see another card and that card could give your opponent a chance to win or it could give them a chance to bluff against you. So yes, the fact that we can win the money that's already in the pot is often the, the thing that drives us to be aggressive. Or we can win through semi-bluffing, which is betting when you've got some chance of winning the hand. So maybe you don't have a pair, maybe you have a couple of spades and there's two spades on the board. If we play our hand aggressively, we might win the hand right now, or we might catch a fifth spade to make a flush, which will almost always be the best hand. Yeah, that's interesting because I don't consider myself to be kind of aggressive. So I, I think I find it quite difficult to really implement an aggressive strategy and it, it might go against the grain, maybe? Yes, I think that um, a lot of players, especially amateurs, often their natural personality comes through in the way they play poker. It isn't uncommon for people who are, should we say, quite kind of loud people to, they, they don't tend to play like a mouse at the table. They'll often like to get stuck in there and play lots of hands and make a lot of bets. Now, we're using aggression in a technical sense. It sounds very confrontational, but we use it in a very specific sense in poker. An aggressive play is when you have the choice of checking or betting, it's betting. It's when you have a choice of calling or raising, it's raising. Did you ever find that an issue in terms of being aggressive? Or is that something that you kind of had to learn and implement into your game at the start? Um, yes and no. So when I watched the programmes on TV, you know, you could see the pattern that aggressive play did work. You know, sometimes several people would have an OK hand. But then the guy who had his straight a straight draw and no pair would win the hand by just bulldozing, you know, everybody else out of the pot, uh, which is a very sound strategy. To balance that out, I would say there's areas where I've had to work on my aggression. So I didn't used to bluff enough. And by studying the game, I've got out of my comfort zone. I now blast off my stack in some spots that would have been terrifying before. But it is now, it's based on some science. Okay, so pre-flop. Let's focus on pre-flop first. What's, what kind of things was I getting wrong in my play? The first thing I noticed was when you first sat down in your cash game, you were, I think, in mid-position, and you can click the sit-in button. You have to play an, a mandatory big blind to do so. That's to stop people just sitting down and playing three hands without having to play the blinds and then leaving the table. So the first tip I'll give you is a very simple one. Wait for the big blind. There's a, usually a button to say, wait for BB. Do use that button. You need to get into the habit of saving money. Poker isn't all about 
winning giant pots and pulling off audacious bluffs. Winning poker is about not wasting chips. So if we can just get into the mindset of protecting our pennies, then, um, you know, it's, it's a good habit to be in. I mean, I'm from Yorkshire. People always say that people from Yorkshire are incredibly tight with their money. So this should be easy for me. <laughs> We're not going to do any stereotypes on the show. Indeed, indeed. Great stuff. So what are the pre-flop issues were there? Okay, when it folded round to you in the small blind, um, you actually, on more than one occasion, took the least good option. The small blind is the hardest position at the table to play, so don't worry if you're finding it difficult. It is difficult. It's difficult for everybody. I play mid-stakes poker. If you play the small blind and the big blind is a reasonable player, it can be quite difficult. It's the power of position, and it's also the fact that you both have such broad ranges you know, once it's been folded around to the small, you've got the right to play a very wide range of hands, but the big blind knows that. So that player has an even greater right to play a wide range of hands. One of the perfectly reasonable things to do is to limp in. This is one spot where it's actually okay to play passively. That's because you're getting such a significant discount on seeing the flop. You're in for half a big blind, so you're getting very good pot odds. That is going to work quite often, especially in low stakes where people play more passively. Now, the other option is you can go the other way. You can play aggressively, mm. which is also very reasonable. We could raise to three or four big blinds. That's a very reasonable thing to do on an online cash game. Now, the least good option is to raise small. Now, the small blind is kind of a special seat at the table. It's actually the worst seat at the table. And if you raise very small, the problem is the big blind's got position on you which is an enormous strategic advantage. So what we should do is look at the reasons for playing aggressively. So one of the reasons we raise is to get an immediate fold out of our opponent. We call this equity denial. So, so the first benefit is equity denial. There's a second benefit, which is very closely related, which is defining your opponent's range. Now, if we've made a raise that is big enough to make them fold at least some of their range, we can then presume or guesstimate that we've narrowed their range which makes it easier to read them because the times they do call us we can at least have inferred something about their range yeah i see we, we, we're kind of soliciting more information by raising exactly that and that plays down the streets the ability we've got to try and teach ourselves in poker is to read our opponent now, that's easier said than done it. The expression reading sounds like some sort of black magic, but it's a, just an inference game. We go, okay, well, we raised to four times the big blind pre-flop, so we think we might presume that he's folded a certain range of hands. He's at least folded 8-4 offsuit and at least folded 10-5 offsuit. Even a very loose player might still fold those hands to a big enough raise, whereas if we only raised to two times the big blind... There are players that will call any two cards at that point, so we haven't defined their range at all. So as we get more experienced, we continually reflect on the effect that our bets are having on our opponent's range. Great. So I'm going to hazard a guess here that um, some of the other issues pre-flop and maybe even post-flop also came from the big and the small blinds. Would I be right? Yes. Yes, that's <laughs> yeah. a pretty good guess. So there's been a few spots. Yes, in fact, most, most of the spots I've written down were where you were in the big blind. This is a very open-ended area of poker and you, you can't really teach a beginner one or two rules of thumb as to how to play out of the blinds. So don't worry if you feel like you're kind of fumbling around. Okay. The fundamental problem you have is you are out of position, which makes all hands harder to play, even aces. So if in doubt, fold. Pre-flop, particularly when you're out of position, yes, it is exploitable to fold too often, 
But when you're a beginner, that might be the best way to play. So, of course, we are continually surrendering some morsel of equity by folding a hand that may have been good enough to play. But people overestimate the value of certain hands. The reality is, most of your hands, especially when you're starting out, a lot of the money you make is made from the premium hands. Disproportionately so. Aces, kings, queens, they make tremendously more money than ace nine and king nine and so on. So were there, were there any specific examples that we can chat through? Yes. There was one where a player raised to three times the big blind. There was a call and you're in the big blind with ace seven offsuit. You're out of position. You're going to be out of position for the entire hand. Now, because it was a three times the big blind raise, that means you're getting worse pot odds than if the villain had raised a smaller amount. You're getting approximately four to one odds, which sounds very appealing. Now, the problem is when we have a weak ace, we have a problem which is, to use a bit of jargon, we call it reverse implied odds. That means there's a risk of either winning a small pot or losing a big pot. That's exactly the opposite of what we want to do in poker. We want to play hands that, by virtue of their strength compared with our opponent's hands, have the chance of winning a big pot and hopefully not too much of a chance of losing a big pot. So I could have avoided a lot of trouble just simply by throwing that hand away. A7 offsuit, preflop, get rid of it, and that would have saved me a lot of hassle, would it? Yes. The thing to remember is, if we call now, we definitely get to see a flop. We call it closing the action. And when you're in a different seat at the table, let's say there's been a raise from mid position and we're on the button, we don't have that particular advantage here because having called, we could face a re-raise by one of the blinds. Now you don't have that problem with a big blind. So that does make the big blind a unique seat at the table. We're getting a discount because of the one big blind we have already have invested, but moreover, our call closes the action and we definitely get to see the flop. So that is one of the good things about this, the seat. And if we had a hand like a pair of twos or a pair of threes, even though that's not a very strong pair, at least we know how much it's going to cost us to see the flop. And we say that the low pairs have very good implied odds and don't have the problem of reverse implied odds. Implied odds means we could win a very big pot so we can invest a small amount of money we can very frequently bin our hand on the flop if it's not the flop we want. But the times we flop a set with our low pair, we're almost certainly going to win the pot. And in fact, there's a very reasonable chance that we could win mm. a very big pot against, for example, somebody who flops top pair or a decent draw that's going to be willing to put multiple streets of bets in. That's really interesting because I can guarantee that in my thinking... Um, I would see the ace and think that that was automatically a better hand, the ace-7 offsuit, than, for instance, a pair of twos. And I wouldn't have I wouldn't have thought that through, that actually being able to see a cheap flop with a pair of twos gives you that chance. You know, it might, it might not happen a lot, but when it does, it will pay off big, whereas the ace-7 offsuit, I'm going to struggle, aren't I, being out of position. If I was on the button with ace-7, I could continuation bet I could play more aggressively but uh, because I don't have that position I'm I'm more hamstrung aren't I? I've got another rule of thumb for you. Go on. A really good rule of thumb when you're making a pre-flop decision like a calling decision what is the flop you want to see? So if you can't name some flops that you'd really like to see mm. then maybe you should lean towards folding. It's easy to think of a good yeah. flop for ace king a king high flop an ace high flop that's a premium yeah. flop. You can imagine good things happening after seeing an ace high flop with a strong ace. 
Maybe your opponent's got a worse ace than you and will pay off two, even three bets on a clean runout where they're not scared of a flush or a straight. Now, when you have a weaker ace, it's hard to visualize a great flop. Of course, if you have ace seven, an ace seven two flop would be wonderful. You don't get that flop very often. So a board with an ace on it, you've got the problem that you don't want to be shoveling chips into the pot because your concern should be that any time your opponent is willing to also match those bets, he's going to have a better ace than you. On the other hand, you could flop a seven, but a seven is very rarely top pair. A board with an ace on it, the ace is always the high card. A board with a seven on it, it's often second or third pair. So in terms of range then from the big blind, in that situation, should I be just looking at the ace Broadway card combinations? Yes. There's a very rapid drop-off of aces below ace-10. Okay. Even ace-9 is kind of on the cusp. You can dominate some of your opponent's aces. You know, a lot of people will raise with, say, ace-5 suited. But again, an experienced player who's playing ace-5 suited is mindful of their kicker. So they might slow down a little bit and not shovel all of their stack in on an ace-high board. So you might have a difficulty getting lots of chips out of them Mm -hmm. when you happen to have them out kicked with your ace nine. So a really good rule of thumb is if your opponent has raised from a position of some degree of strength, people raise a lot wider on the button. But if someone's raised from the hijack or mid position, then you you really have to be cautious with your ace nines and ace eight offsuits. All wise words as ever from Andy Hills. So we're going to take a short break now. And when we come back, we're going to be looking at some of my post-flop decisions. Fingers crossed they're a little bit better. Fancy pitting your poker skills against Nick the Fish? Well, if you're based in the UK or Ireland and have a Grosvenor Poker Online account, that might just be possible. Get in touch with me via the Facebook group and maybe we could start doing a Fish to Final Table home game every week. Welcome back everyone, this is part three of the Fish to Final Table Poker Podcast and we're going to be now looking, examining, if you like, some of my post-flop decisions and Andy, how how were the post-flop decisions kind of shaping up? Any interesting spots? There were two particularly interesting spots. Okay. And you played them pretty badly. (laughs) (laughs) That's good to know. Okay, so... Was it the blinds again? In the big blind again. Okay. Yes, good good read. (laughs) Yeah, work to be done, yep. Okay, so this first example, I'll tell you why it's bad, but it actually points at a greater issue, which is something you should keep in mind, especially as a beginner. Great. So you had ace three of spades, the button raised to three times the blind, you called which is fine. Uh, The button could be raising an extremely wide range of hands. Some people raise almost anything from the button. They see it as a license to raise any two cards. Mm -hmm. So any suited ace, 100% must be called. I wouldn't re-raise there, would I? No, I would avoid re-raising any time you've got a low card. I would only be re-raising with your high pairs. I would even call with just nines and eights and sevens. Even though it's a very strong hand and figures to be the best hand, you don't want to get into a spot where you've bloated the pot against presumably a more experienced player on the button. Mm -hmm. We'll just be re-raising with our very strong hands. Okay, so you've called with ace three of spades. We get a flop of 10-9-7 rainbow and your opponent made a very small bet and you made a bluff raise. And I'm guessing the reason that you didn't fold your hand, which hadn't connected the flop in any way, 
because you saw his small bet as weakness. Is that yeah, a reasonable guess? Yeah, good read from you this time. <laughs> yeah, I, I think maybe because I tend to be thinking about raising 70%, that's what I kind of got into my mind. I'm judging anyone else's raises according to my own, and maybe there's a bit of folly in that. Yes, so attacking small bets is actually a thing in poker. Now, there's two reasons I don't like it in this spot. One of them is we just have absolutely no piece of this board. We don't even have three cards to a flush. We don't have even three cards to a straight. We have ace high. Even if he only has ace high, it's probably a better ace high than ours. So although we do want to sometimes attack an opponent who we think is weak, don't just do it with any two cards. At least do it with a hander that has some semblance of a chance of improving. At the bare minimum, in modern poker, people tend to make a bluff raise when they have three cards to a straight or three cards to a a flush. When you're starting out, I don't even recommend doing that. The problem is you may choose the wrong spots to bluff. When you make a bluff on a board like this, you have to ask yourself, what are you trying to make your opponent fold? The problem you have on this board is how coordinated it is and how many different cards your opponent could have that interact with this board. In other words, we're we're just not going to get many folds when we raise this flop. Most connected cards make some sort of combination of a gut shot straight draw and a pair. Most aces have actually got some piece of of this board. Ace seven through ace jack have got a pair or a straight draw. And Broadway cards have got two over cards and a straight draw on this board. So I don't expect your opponents to be betting and then folding those hands very often unless they're very timid. So maybe going into the next session I should kind of focus on if I am going to bluff, leave it to the to the continuation bet and maybe go tight in the other aspects of bluffing. Yes, that's an excellent guideline. Continuation bet is a very profitable bet, especially at low stakes. You will print money by continuation betting as the aggressor because you can credibly represent all kinds of strong hands. You can represent that you had aces pre-flop and now we're betting for value on on most flops. But as for bluff raising flops and so on, stay away from that until we're more experienced. So I raise, I presume he calls. What what happens next? What happens with the turn? Well, the turn paired the nine and the action went check, check. You checked and he checked back. Now, I do like that you gave up uh, at this point. What Mm. are you trying to represent? Are you trying to represent that you raised the flop with second pair and now you've got trips? Okay, so so then the river. Does it get ugly on the river? Yes. So the river comes an ace, and Mm. you made a very significant bet. You bet 57 into 82. So that's a very substantial bet. That's about two-thirds the size of the pot. I don't like this bet. So the question you have to ask yourself when you make a big bet, what are you trying to achieve? Is it a Mm. bluff or is it a value bet? Now, you have improved. You've hit an ace. You've paired your ace. Now, which hand are you trying to get called by? when you bet big on this river. So if you can't name a worse hand that you're trying to get called by, effectively it becomes a bluff. We're betting hoping that he folds something better. Now, can you really imagine him folding a better hand? So this river spot is a really good lesson in how to think about all of our bets, especially big bets. What are we trying to achieve with our bet? Are we trying Mm. to bluff? Which means trying to make him fold something better than we have. Or are we trying to value bet, which means trying to get called by something worse? Now, our hand is slap bang in the middle. We have a very poor ace. 
our opponent could have a better ace than us. He could have ace-eight or ace-jack. Those hands had a straight draw on the flop, and maybe he was suspicious of your raise, or he called just to try and improve. Mm. Now he's improved to an ace, which beats your ace. Now, he's not going to fold ace-jack. Having called the raise and improved to a pair of aces, he's not going to fold to this bet on the river. We, d we clearly don't want him to have ace-jack. But if we bet big, the problem is he's going to call with ace-jack and fold with worse hands, which yeah. is exactly the opposite of we want, what we want to achieve. I mean, this is blowing my mind because I can guarantee that the thought behind that bet was I just need to blast this opponent off whatever hand they are holding and not thinking about it in terms of a value bet. Even though I was seeing the ace, I was thinking that is the only card that really I could hope for to improve my hand. Now I need to, to bet for value, but I'm not betting for value, am I? I'm betting as a bluff without even realising. Yeah, well, it's neither. It's, it's neither a bluff yeah. nor nor a value bet it's just yeah. a bad bet <laughs> that's what i'd call it what you should do is check now okay um if if you can't bet for value and if you can't bluff then you should check whenever whenever raising then should i always be asking myself right is this for a value bet is it for a bluff exactly so the mental process you should be going through before making any bet is what is the purpose of this bet so the first step is can i bluff or can i value bet because some, by the way, sometimes you do occasionally have a choice. And the way you think about that is, if you're considering a bluff, try and name some hands that you think he would fold. And crucially, mm. try to think of hands that are better than your hand that could plausibly fold. And that is the thought process that makes this clearly a bad bluff, yeah. because you can't make a good ace fold. Now, go through the same process, but for a value bet. Can we make a value bet? Could he plausibly call with a worse hand? on this river when we make a big bet. Well, if he had a pair of sevens or a pair of tens, he does not like that ace river. So there's a limited range of hands that are worse than yours that could call, but it's easy to think of some better hands that could call. So if we imagine that we make the big bet and he calls, knowing that he has called that bet, do you think he's more often got a better hand than you or a hand worse than yours? Well, that's it. Well, now going through it in the cold light of day, now I'm thinking he's probably got something like ace-jack or ace-queen or something like that. Yeah. So to be clear, it's okay to value bet knowing we can sometimes get called by a better hand. We can't tiptoe around hoping to never lose a hand. If it turns out that our opponent has a better hand than us, we just have to chalk it up to experience. But when we make a river value bet and we get called, we must be winning at least 50% of the time for that to be a profitable bet. So what, what happened? He calls and, and does it go to showdown? Uh, and <laughs> your opponent actually had 9-8 suited, I believe. So they improved wow. to trips on the turn. They trapped by checking back the turn, which I think is a very reasonable play, by the way. You might think that they want to get as many chips from you as possible with having made such a good hand. But it may be that your opponent made a very good read, which is that your range is extremely polar. A polar range means you've either got a very strong hand or nothing. So perhaps your opponent was scared that your hand wasn't good enough to call a bet on the turn. And perhaps they, th perhaps they thought that you were completely bluffing, which was in fact the case. And their only chance of getting more chips out of you was for your bluff hand to improve. And that's exactly what happened. So it's it's quite possible that your opponent 
utterly scored you there. <laughs> yeah, and to be honest, I would have folded to a, a bet on the turn. Uh, so it, definitely a good decision to to check back. So any other decisions that went awry post flop? Yes. Once again, it's an ace. Okay. And we're in the big blind. Okay. Okay. Ace three of spades. Now the action went raise to two times the big blind. There was a call on the button, I think, and you overcalled in the big blind with ace three of spades. By overcalled, I mean somebody else has called first. We call as well. Okay. The flop comes ace ten six with two hearts, which is an above average flop for our hand. We've flopped top pair, but we have a dodgy kicker. So we sometimes have the best hand and it's quite possible we have our opponents crushed. If neither of our opponents has an ace or a set, then we're winning with a pair of aces and we're a long way ahead. Mm -hmm. However, we have to tread cautiously because we're out of position. And of course, it's very plausible that either of our opponents could have a better ace than us. Now, on the flop, the action goes check. No, I like your check. You should always check in this situation. We have a good hand, but it's not so good that we can bet and expect to get called by lots and lots of worse hands. So mm -hmm. I like the fact that you check the flop. The best way to make money out of our hand is by playing it passively. It's by allowing our opponent to bluff, allowing our opponent to be aggressive. Now, the key point is our opponent is supposed to play aggressively here. It's come ace high and they can credibly have all the strong hands on this board. The general perception is that we would probably re-raise with our very strong aces like ace-king, that we would re-raise some proportion of the time with a, with a pair of tens pre-flop. Mm -hmm. And crucially, we have a much wider perceived range of weak aces and weak pairs. By playing passively, not only do we moderate the size of the pot and control the size of the pot when they have a better hand than us, but mm. we also keep in their bad hands and we incentivize them to bluff, to represent mm. that they have the good hands. And this is the essence of good poker. When we have a middling hand, we want to manipulate our opponent's range. We want to manipulate them into having a range that includes all the bad hands as well as the good hands. So the check there is incentivizing either of the opponents to to make a bluff, to, to, to represent a wider range of hands. Yes, and also not to telegraph our own hand. We have a very reasonable hand. If the first opponent were to bet this flop, and the other opponent folded, we could call with a lot of hands worse than the hand we do have. It wouldn't be unreasonable to call with a pair of tens, you know, like jack ten. We could call with any two hearts. We could even call sometimes with something like nine eight suited with the backdoor flush draw. That would be very reasonable. So out of all the hands that we could call the flop with, we've got a very strong hand. It's nice to keep the strong hands disguised. Hmm. It's not unreasonable to think our opponent could actually continue bluffing even after we call them on this flop. So that's why playing passively is sometimes very good. So when we can identify that our opponent has the range advantage, that's the scenario when we should play passively. Keep their bad hands in, incentivize them to bluff, and control the size of the pot for the occasions when we happen to be beaten. Interesting. And so what comes next then? So I check, what do the, the other players do? So the original Razor checked as well, and the in-position player made a bet. Now, of course, you called with your pair of aces, which is absolutely correct. Your hand is far too strong to fold. And then the original razor also called. 
Now, do you remember I said we should get into the habit of paying attention to all of the action, continually reevaluating our opponent's ranges? Now, mm -hmm. the in-position player clearly could just be bluffing. He could have made an opportunist stab at the pot just because everybody else checked. However, when it goes bet and call and the original raiser overcalled, we can't put them on nothing. I'd say they have at least a pair of jacks or queens or kings or quite possibly a weak ace. So what's the turn? What, what comes out next? Okay, so this is where the hand gets interesting. Our hand improves on the turn. The turn comes the three of hearts. Wow. Now, this is an interesting card. We've improved to two pair. Now, it is possible that we were beaten on the flop and now we have the best hand. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, it's possible we were beaten all along and we're still beaten. We're still <laughs> losing to ace-10. We're still losing to ace-6. We're losing to a pocket sixes, pocket tens, or pocket aces. And crucially, either one of our opponents could now have a flush. There's now three hearts on the board. Yeah. So although our hand has improved in absolute terms, it's actually not improved much in relative terms. And this is the lesson that we need to take from this hand. We should be continually reflecting on the relative value of our hand and not the absolute strength. Now, you misplay the hand on the turn by leading into your opponents. Okay. Now, I don't like this bet. I think you should check again because in reality, even though we've improved to two pair, our hand is in a very similar situation to how it was on the flop. By leading into both of our opponents, we're over-representing. Remember pre-flop, we overcalled, mm -hmm. which we could have done because we had two suited cards. So we can easily arrive at the turn with almost any two hearts. That means that our opponents, if they don't have a flush themselves, they've got to fear that we have the flush. So the problem is, you could actually get your opponent to fold loads of the hands that you're beating, yeah. which is not what we want to do when we have a reasonable hand like two pair. And here's another thing. In multi-way pots, people tend to play more honestly. And there's a logical reason behind that. It's quite ambitious to try and bluff two opponents because there's a very significant chance that at least one of them has a strong hand. You know, in this instance, either one of them could have a set, either one of them could have a flush, and those hands clearly aren't folding. So there is a risk that by betting, we're going to isolate a stronger range of hands. Andy, can I confess something to you? I am pretty sure I didn't spot the flush on the board uh, when I made that raise. Uh. All I saw was, here we go, I've got ace and now I've paired my kicker because I would have been worrying about the kicker. And, and so then to pair that at the bottom, that's what I was thinking. So I didn't realise at that moment that the flush was there. Yes. Okay. So, the, the, well, there's one extra lesson to take from my hand then, isn't there? <laughs> School is in session. It's, it's not actually that long since I played a, uh, played a poker hand where I, I got to the turn in a live poker game, rechecked my cards and then realised I had a totally different hand to what I thought I had. So, but, but that's vaguely excusable worry. live, isn't it? Because, you, you know, your, your cards are face down. Online, you've, you've, you've got them right in front of you. You know, there's, surely there's no excuse. <laughs> However, I would say, in general, you still want to be checking. Yeah. Um, when you play one street passively so for example we play the flop passively by calling there's not that many scenarios where we want to play the next street aggressively so that we call that donk betting donk betting is when you call the flop but then you lead into your opponents on the turn now 
There are some situations where donk betting is correct, but as a beginner, you're not going to know which of the correct spots to do it. So I would recommend never doing it. Our opponent was the aggressor on the flop. There's a lot of situations where they're going to continue to be the aggressor on the turn. And even if they do have one of those worst hands that, that could call a donk bet, there's a problem that they're now going to be on the back foot. You are representing exactly what you've got. You're representing that you have a hand that's improved. And if I play against an inexperienced player and they lead into me on a certain turn, I often will read them for having hit that specific card. Okay. Is that why it's called a donk bet then? Because it's a kind of not very sophisticated play. It's, I presume the etymology of that is, is donkey bet. It doesn't mean a donk bet is always a donkey thing to do, but it, it historically has been perceived to be a, a thing that donkeys do more than good players. So what happens next then? I presume I get called by both, especially the, the initial raiser. Actually, what happened was that you made both of your opponents fold. Now, So I won. <laughs> so I That's won. That's good, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, and that is um, the, the battle cry of a donkey. <laughs> I won, didn't I? <laughs> so although you took down the pot, it may have been a relief to take down the pot, but that wasn't the result we wanted. A hand as strong as two pair, we want to extract some value right. from that hand. The lesson from this hand is... You want to identify spots where there's lots and lots of worse hands that can call. And if we were to lead into our opponents on the turn, it should be because we want to build a pot to put more chips in on the river. And you've got a problem that even if they make the crying call on the turn, feeling that you probably have a flush a lot of the time, they're still not going to put any more chips in on the river. This is really interesting then, because I guarantee that when I won that hand, I was patting myself on the back and thinking that the world was a wonderful place and wow, I am absolutely crushing this game and he's going to beam with pride when he sees this. Is this the kind of play then that over a period of time is going to lose me money? Yes. In general, you don't want to be leading with very mediocre hands. So if we're going to review what's our takeaway from this hand... Let's think of this as a reformulation or a refinement of our previous rule of thumb. We said, given the choice, if in doubt, play aggressively. Now, here's the exception. Post-flop, we don't want to do that with our middling hands, the hands that are neither good enough to bet for value and expect to get called by lots of worse hands, nor bad enough to bet as a bluff to try and fold out something better. In fact, we play passively with our middling, quite good hands. And further, when we're evaluating the strength of our hand, it's crucial to think in terms of relative hand strength. Don't think about the absolute hand strength. Yes, two pair is a good hand, but it shrivels up on a three flush board. So in a multi-way pot where conceivably all three players could have a flush, two pair is not a relatively strong hand and therefore isn't a hand we would want to play with excessive aggression. Great stuff. So, first session, how would you grade that session? You know, bearing in mind this is the first session that I've played, uh, how would you grade it? Um, I'm going to rate you... I'm going to rate your session a 9-6 suited. Oh, suited? <laughs> kind of promising, but not as good as you thought it was. <laughs> That is fair. I'm I'm slightly disappointed not to have at least a 10 in there, but okay, I'll take it. I'm just happy it's suited. 
And I'm going to take what you've said into the next sessions and, and build on that and, and maybe keep myself in check as well, because I was kind of overwhelmed with the success. And I've got to say, I did check the balance and I was I was pretty beholden by the, the balance and the amount of money that was going up and down and up and down. And maybe that's something I need to kind of just steer clear of a bit and just focus on playing. Yes, stay in the moment. Uh, don't worry about being up or down. Just take each street at a time, you know, one hand at a time and one street at a time. So you get to the flop, you get to the turn, think about what you think your opponent's got, consider all of your options, value betting, bluffing, inducing a bluff by checking, and try to think rationally about what you're trying to achieve on this particular street of this particular hand. Andy Hills, thanks ever so much for being on the show and for your wise, wise words on poker. Thank you, Nick. Good luck. Well, that's it for this episode of the Fish to Final Table Poker Podcast. I'm off to practice playing Ace-3 from the big blind in order to get back on track on my inevitable quest for a World Series of Poker stardom. So wish me luck and we'll see you on the next episode. The Fish to Final Table Poker Podcast is an AOA TV production hosted by Nick Oakley with technical support from David Davis. Title music from D6 Bass with additional music provided by Claire Northey. The online artwork is courtesy of Nice Things by Bella. <laughs>